0: Fourth of July is a time when we think about our nation, we think about our heritage, we think about our founding fathers. And as he described, our founding fathers were extraordinary men. Many were ordinary men who who rose to greatness in a a critical hour in our history. Some were truly brilliant with a a depth of knowledge in, in science, agriculture, philosophy, language, history, and they were all dedicated men, determined men, and men with vision. Many of their wives were were powerful and wonderful pillars for them and to them, strong and supportive, um, often serving as their, their closest confidant and advisor, women like Abigail Adams, for example. You can read the letters that went back and forth between John Adams and his wife, Abigail, in recent years, our educational establishment has made a, a pastime out of denigrating our founding fathers. But despite these, these modern efforts to tear them down, the fact remains that many of them truly did have sterling character and were willing to sacrifice everything they owned and, and their very lives. But the reason the American Revolution succeeded was not because of these men. You see, there have been others in history who have had vision. They carry names like Alexander the Great or Napoleon and others lesser known who, who dreamed of bringing peace, usually under their hand and in their rules. But there are others who had vision, who had perseverance and determination and a willingness to die for their cause. So, no, the vision and the character of these men while great was not the reason why the American Revolution succeeded and why our nation has risen to greatness. Now, some people believe it was the ideas and the philosophies that provided the framework for our fledgling nation, which are responsible for the greatness of our nation. Uh, When Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, others who participated in the drafting of the Declaration of Independence uh, boldly rejected the authority of a king, and instead proclaimed that human, fundamental human rights were the true authority, you know, they were making an audacious move. They were creating the great American experiment, putting the ideas of philosophers like John Locke into practice, and they were trying on the philosophies of the Enlightenment with the emphasis on human rights of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, as, as Mr. Ruddleson mentioned, as really new gods that would bring peace and harmony and prosperity to a country. But no, these ideas, those ideas, democracy, free enterprise, the right to governance by the people and for the people, these ideas are not why the American Revolution and the American Dream succeeded either. See, despite the character, despite the vision and the faith of our founding fathers of 1776, they were not the reason that we live in the America that we see today. No. You see, the American Revolution was successful because of a different group of founding fathers. Founding fathers who actually lived thousands of years earlier. The men of 1776 were we're there, you might say, at the birth of our nation, but not at the conception. See, every Fourth of July in this country we're we're reminded of a, of a seminal day in our history as a nation, and that history is important. and I, I realize that this topic topic is really specifically focused on us as, as an American audience, as we're talking about here here today. but But because the history of America is so tightly entwined, with God's plans and prophecies for, for physical Israel, it's important and it's really meaningful for all of us as spiritual Israelites wherever we live, no matter what nation we call our home. So today what I'd like to do, I think it's apropos and following on the heels of Mr. Ruddelson, I'd like to take the time to review our true founding fathers. And that's the title I've given the sermon today, Our True Founding Fathers. I'd like to focus on their character because the character and the commitment of these men is the reason why the American Revolution succeeded and that we sit here today. So to be clear, to be clear, the American Revolution did succeed. Let's go to Genesis chapter 49. Here's what was prophesied. Genesis 49 And we read in verse twenty two Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. And this these prophecies are preceded, or this prophecy is preceded by verse one, where Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. So then we see the prophecy here and that applies to Joseph, Ephraim, Manasseh. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. Here's what happened. As the United States of America was established as a nation, it quickly grew from four million people who were established along the, the coastal colonies. It doubled in size shortly after the Revolution, gaining much of the territory through, through negotiations with Britain west of the Mississippi, and then doubled again with the Louisiana Purchase not long after that. Over the next decades, it again more than doubled. If you read some of the what Mr. O'Gwen wrote in the booklet, United States and Great Britain in prophecy, he recounts this. He says, Seven prophetic times, 2,520 years, went by from the time of Samaria's fall and Israel's captivity in 721 BC. This brings us to 1800 AD, the time when I'm talking about when it was doubling and doubling again in a few short years. He says, When, according to Scripture, Abraham's descendants would begin coming into possession of their birthright promises. The remarkable story that unfolded in the history of the English-speaking people after 1800 is astounding. Uh, continuing again from our booklet, to fully understand what happened and to put it into perspective, let us look, briefly look at the history of Europe. By the close of the 11th century after Christ, most of the European nations, uh, I'm sorry, most of the European migrations were completed and nations were mostly in the areas in which we find them today. The Israelites had arrived in waves of migration extending over centuries in the new lands that they were destined to inherit. After all, God had anciently told Jacob that his descendants would spread abroad to the north, the west, the east, and the south. Just to give you a perspective, in 1600 A.D., according to best estimates, and there's a wide range of guesses, so I'm taking about the middle ground here, the Native American population uh, in this land left about three, point, actually three people per square mile. So in order for you to bump into another person, you'd have to walk quite a ways. That was the basic density of population in this country. And in, in Europe, as, as a comparison, at the same time, there were 78 million people, a total land uh, of 3.8 million square miles, about 21 people per square miles in Europe at the same time. About sixteen hundred, twenty-one people per square mile as far as a population density. In England in England, it was about seventy four people per square mile. That was the density of population that led to this 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 migration that I'll say disgorged that pushed people into this land to fill this land, colonize this land. That as I read at that time roughly a population was about three people per square mile if you average it all out over the course of the of the whole nation, continental United States. Um, we come from that time. We come forward now 150 years to the 1950s to get, get a, 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 a sense of where things went in 150 years from, let's say, 1800. 1950s. I'm going to read a little bit of... Uh, of the description of the time. The Eisenhower era of the 1950s, this is from Khan Academy, which is a great um, educational resource that simplifies and boils down some of uh, information in one uh, area or another. But it talks about the 1950s and prosperity. The Eisenhower era of the 1950s was a time of unprecedented economic growth and prosperity. GDP, or gross domestic product, grew at an astonishing 150% in the period from 1945 to 1960. In the 1950s, with only 5% of the world's population, the U.S. economy produced almost half of the world's manufactured products. Americans drove three-quarters of the world's cars and consumed half of its energy. Union membership reached its historic peak in American history in 1954 when almost 35% of the nation's workforce was unionized. The GI Bill and the Marshall Plan expenditures, along with Cold War defense spending, contributed to economic growth. So too did did the nation's growing population. Some 50 million babies were born during the continuing baby boom in the Eisenhower era. As I read this, you can't help but think about what I just read. Blessings of the womb. Well, that's what was happening as America began to to uh, emerge on the world scene as the unequivocal power. Here's another uh, description. It talks about the miracle of the 1950s. It's from another website, a classroom education website. With the poverty of the Great Depression and sacrifice of World War II, the 1930s and 1940s were wrought with hardship. At the close of the war, though, America entered an unprecedented time of economic prosperity that continued into the next decade. Fueled by the GI Bill, increased military spending, and an attitude of optimism and hope, the 1950s were an era of growing families, developing neighborhoods, and a burgeoning consumerism. When World War II military production largely ending, I'm sorry, with World War II military production largely ending the depression, The U.S. entered the 1950s with the highest standard of living in the world. The GI Bill, which provided housing, education, and monetary benefits to veterans, was a prominent factor in this economic growth, as many of the 16 million people who served in the war took advantage of the chance to build new lives and exercise their new purchasing power. Civilian spending wasn't the only contributor to the economy, however. With the dawn of the Cold War, the federal government's investments in military defense spurred further growth, growing in military power. It talks about the boom in babies. The growth of families also contributed to the prosperity of the 1950s. 3.4 million babies were born in 1946, a 20% increase from just one year before. It says, more marriages also occurred than prior to the war, with couples choosing to have more children at younger ages. According to Scholastic.com, 75 million babies were born between 1946 and 1964, including me, by the way. Uh, so uh, I, I vouch for that. Yes, it, it did happen. So. The newcomers enhanced America's economic state by giving young families a desire to provide both needs and luxuries for their children. And finally, World War II resulted in a simplistic way of living for most Americans, forcing them to forego material desires in the support of the war effort. In the 1950s, though, consumerism was no longer seen as a luxury, but as a citizen's patriotic duty in giving the country a new start. In the 1950s, TV sales skyrocketed to five million purchases per year, giving advertisers a wider audience for their products. Along with the advent of the five-day work week and paid vacations, this new consumerism led to a growth in the leisure industry with McDonald's, Disneyland, and hotel chains all feeding a new desire for travel. This all sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Because we know what we read in Leviticus 26. Let's go to Leviticus 26. And we knew, we knew this ahead of time, didn't we? If we could have been in a time machine. We knew Leviticus 26... All this is prophesied, while unlikely, while unlikely, it's prophesied. Leviticus 26, we read how God spoke to the Israelites and he he gave them a, a sense of what could be and what was then fulfilled with ultimately at the end of the age, but he says if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you agricultural blessings that you can only imagine rain in season the land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit your threshing shall last till the time of vintage and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely this is this is fulfilled has been fulfilled in in multiples in our history, in our just in our memory, over the past few decades, hasn't it, in a way that we can only, we can't, I guess, it's, I would say it's hard for us to grasp any other way, but yet that's what we've enjoyed in this land here and in other uh, of the of Israelitish, uh, particularly the birthright nations. He goes on, he says, You shall eat bread, verse 6, I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred. In other words, your power will be all inordinately more than your numbers. That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? It's what we've experienced. Where we can go to the world and say, Do you better do what we say, or we're going to care we're going to have our big stick knock you in the head but this is prophesied here. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. Psalm 2, in Psalm 2 we read a statement about the nations and about God's hand. Psalm 2, very simple premise here. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? All our plans as kings or citizens... Ultimately are under the, are under the hand of God. He says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. In other words, you might say that, that Adamic principle, that is, we can come up with a way to rule ourselves, we can do what we want to do, and God has nothing to do with it. That's what, in essence, Mankind has said, as he describes, but verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. This premise that God is the one who is in charge. To be clear, to be clear, when one nation controls and consumes the largest part of the world's resources, if we believe what we read here, it cannot be without God's knowledge or involvement. But where did this all begin? Again, back to the question, where did this all begin? Do we exist as a nation? Are we great because because of our faith in democracy? Are we great because we are wiser, we are more creative, we are more hardworking working and those other nations of the world. Is that why we are great? Have we enjoyed a prosperity unrivaled in human history because we believe in a way of doing the economy, a way of doing business? Are we really great because, as uh, Alexander de Tocqueville said, because we are good? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 12 to find the answer and to be introduced to the first of our founding fathers. Genesis chapter 12. Verse 1. Now the Lord has said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. The missing element For those patriotic citizens tomorrow who actually believe that we're a great country and appreciate it, as opposed to just simply having a picnic and doing whatever else, the missing ingredient is going to be right here, isn't it? He said, because God said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Then we have the other spiritual Component of it, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We see this promise repeated to Abram. We came Abraham through the next pages, Genesis. Let's go to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. We read in Genesis 18, and we're skipping a couple of the versions of it, but the repetition of it, but. We'll go to Genesis chapter 18 and verse 16. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. An echo of what we just read in an earlier chapter. Very plain, clear statement about Uh, Abraham as we'll use the term a founding father of a nation unlike any people in history he says for I have known him again verse uh, 19 I have known him in order that he may then command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him the other component that through the principles that are taught by by Abraham if they are taught faithfully then that will bring that will help those benefits to actually come to pass and be enjoyed and we all, we know the other part back in Leviticus 26 which is not read as when those when those commandments are not obeyed then those blessings will be removed but but we understand the education and, and an establishment of a way of thinking and culture is going to be part of it but we cannot forget the initial part which is, Abraham, you are going to be the father of a people. Let's go to Genesis 26. Genesis 26. We read here about Abraham's son Isaac. We read in Genesis chapter 26, verse 1, There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar, and we read verse 2, Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And he, so, so he, he he points to him. He reminds him of the blessing that was uh, promised to his father. And he says it will be a shadow of that, you might say. A precursor will be fulfilled in the land of Canaan, in which you're living. But there's more to it than that because, as he goes on, he says, I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. And I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Why are we a great nation? Because, verse 5, Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. At the end of the day, that is the reason, first, foremost, and always. We continue. Chapter 27. Chapter 27 and verse 27. Here we read, of the day that Isaac blessed his son Jacob, and we see how this promise continues on. Abraham, or rather, uh, Isaac here, verse 27, said, surely as he blessed his son, Verse. uh, let's begin back in verse 27, uh, brother, verse 26, then his father Isaac said to him, come near now and kiss me, my son. And we understand this was Jacob, not Esau. And uh, a little bit of social engineering was happening here where he uh, he was uh, playing the devious part. But that doesn't change God's design and his intent for the blessings. He says, he blessed him and he said, Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. You're going to have an influence, your descendants will have an influence that will be such that nations who are friendly and are friends will will benefit, and those who are not will suffer consequences. But it's because, again, because of these founding fathers... As we're described as we're reading here. Um, back, just to flip across to uh, verse. Let's go to verse. Um, let's see here. Verse. Let's go to Genesis 30, 30 not 35 rather. Verse 35. Let's flip over a couple here. Genesis 35. Genesis 35, we see that this, that God continues to work with Abraham's grandson here, that is Jacob. And he says verse, uh, verse 9, then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob, your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And verse 11, also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. He says a nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. Verse 12. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac I give to you and to your descendants after you I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him Bethel. And again specifically speaking of that land, but we find many references that, that actually apply that, as I read in Genesis 49, to the end of the, of, of, of the age, when it will be more than just that small land of Palestine. It will be a great nation that will dominate over the world. So we read of a, a nation and a company of nations. So God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would bless their family, and he promised them a nation and a company of nations. And these nations would become the greatest powers in history. And because of, then, of certain characteristics, you would say, of the founding fathers, at the end of days, our nation exists. Uh, we recognize that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were not perfect. They were flawed, like our own founding fathers of 1776. But they, they were, they were flawed, they were human, but yet, The basic fundamental characteristics that God desired define them as men. So to make this more personal then, let's take this a step farther, and that's this. We must ask the question then, what are those characteristics? If we're going to learn from them as our founding fathers, then what were those characteristics? They're simple, but they were sound, and they're timeless. And they apply for us today as we consider this This weekend, this day, this time, it's worthwhile for us to consider these today. Let's go to Genesis chapter 15. We skipped this before. We're going to take a a few minutes now to, to apply this. We recognize the truth that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... Our true founding fathers, even if the world around us doesn't recognize it, never sees it, never doesn't understand it, yet they were the reason why we sit here with such prosperity. That's true, but but how do we apply it then in our lives? How do we apply it for our, ourselves? Let's go to Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to talk about vision and faith because if you could identify two fundamental characteristics that were born out in these three men, vision and faith would have to be at at the core. And the two are wrapped together. You can't have faith without vision. There's no vision without faith. So they're they're, they're, they're wrapped together. And they're rare qualities. Vision is rare. I'm not talking about the ability to see what is already already there understand that vision i'm talking about the vision that goes way beyond that let's go to genesis 15 as i said and let's let's read a little bit here genesis chapter 15 and verse 1 after these things the word of the lord came to abram in a vision saying do not be afraid abraham i am your shield your exceedingly great reward but Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. So Abraham, looking at what one could see, he said, I, there's, there's nothing there. How is this going to happen? Because there's no son. I have no offspring. How can you possibly put your promises into effect? So what he could see indicated really no, no ability to move forward. But look what God did. Verse uh, verse uh, 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, that is Eliezer, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And look what he did. Verse 5. He brought him outside and he said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, said to him, so shall your descendants be. In other words, he could see the stars, but he used that as a a, a model or a template or a, a bridge to see what he couldn't see. He said, you see those stars? What you can't see is that your children, your descendants will be like that and more. And Abraham got it. Abraham got it he had the ability he had the vision to to understand what god was doing and what god was showing him now i think that for us as we we sit here today it may be hard to grasp the challenge that abram faced not only was was he childless at that point but he was living in a land that was completely unfamiliar uh, at least it wasn't his own his own land it wasn't his homeland and living in order, to, in order to be able to um, uh, ultimately receive through his family this promise that God promised him, he had to live a life in which he was alone culturally. And I, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're, you're in a completely unfamiliar culture. Um, you can think of the feast or think of different times when you've traveled perhaps. Um, think of maybe when you've, you've moved from another place, maybe New York, Down to Charlotte, we have a lot of uh, New Yorkers down here, um, maybe from the West Coast or from Kansas City or somewhere here. And yet when you go to a new place, you know, there are are three stages in culture shock. The first stage is the honeymoon stage, the stage where everything is, wow, this is neat. Look, there's this, there's that, Um, lots of people here in the church. And so there's a a honeymoon stage where everything, when you're in in a new place, is new, it's different, it's exciting, but eventually what happens is you enter the second stage of culture shock. You know what the second stage of culture shock is? It's when you get really sick of everything the way it is and you wish you were back where you're supposed to be. (laughs) That's the second stage. And, uh, when, when I was working in Thailand, I saw this every year. I mean, I felt it myself, but I saw this in the students. We had 12 students come over every year from the States, and you'd watch, you'd watch everyone go through this. You tried to warn them about it because you knew it was coming. But at first, everybody's like, wow, Thailand, this is so cool. I mean, there's tuk tuks, there's little markets, and there's people talking in these, this different language. Wow, this is so neat. It sounds so exotic. And that lasted for about a month. And then, and then came, I am so sick of this place. (laughs) I can't understand anything. I don't know what anybody's saying. I go to a grocery store. I have no idea what's happening around me. And I tell you, when you live in a foreign country, there is nothing, there is nothing so pleasant as to come back home and to walk in a grocery store and actually understand what's happening around you. You, There's a a mental, for those of you that are from different countries, uh, and and English is not your first language, maybe you know what I'm talking about. There's a mental stress and strain that after a while, your brain just, when you're constantly trying to understand everything that's happening around you, you're trying to understand words, and you're catching a word here, you're catching a word there. But but after a while, your brain just begins to melt down. And it's like, I can't, I can't try to catch anymore because I have no idea what they're saying. It's just, you know, babbling and gobbledygook. And I'm sick of it. I can't take it anymore. And you go to your own homeland, And you walk in the grocery store, and you just stand next to people and listen. It's a little bit bit weird, actually. It's a little bit creepy, I understand. But there have been times where where literally, when we'd come back to the States, and I would just stand listening to other people talk about nonsense. But it was so nice just to understand what they were saying. So stage two of culture shock is, and I say this because think about Abraham. He was living in a foreign land. He never... And his son and his grandson—they never were part of the local culture. <clears throat> they were small in comparison. You had other different. You can look at the history. You have different cultures around them, but they were not part of it. And so the challenge of living in a different culture clearly—we can see some of examples. How they even Sarah's burial place and different things that happened, where we can see how they had to had to relate to local cultures and customs. But but the second stage of culture shock is where you're just you're just sick of it. And you want, you want, you just want to shut down. The third stage is where you come to an equilibrium. And you, you're able to deal with it. You're able to cope. You're never going to be a local. It was one of the things I found in Thailand. Um, you know, after I've been there a few years, uh, I'd get on a bus. I'd be, I'd be standing there on the bus. And I'd, I'd see a pharang get on the bus. Pharang is a, like a European, a white person. Um, a pharang, you know, you, a pharang. They get on the bus, and, I, ooh, look, a pharang, you know. And everybody else on the bus, too, everybody's like, ooh, a pharang, you know. And it, but then one day it dawned on me, I'm a pharang. So, so, so because I had been there long enough, I didn't think of myself as a pharang anymore because I was there. But the reality was that every single time that I would meet a Thai person that did not know me, they would, they would see me as someone who just got off the boat, so to speak. Because to them, I was a Farahm. It didn't matter if I, I could have lived there the rest of my life, and I could have, as far as a new person you walk up to, I could have been someone who just arrived and knew nothing of local culture or anything. That would never change. It would never change. Because, you know, we look different. And, um, and that's part of what being a minority is about. For, uh, for real. So, That's that's what if we can think about it with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and try to grasp the challenge of living his life out as he had to do, living a life in which he knew he would never, ever see the benefits of his actions. You know, we think we have the concept that if we work hard, we will see benefits, right? Because we understand the principle of cause and effect of a fruit that's produced. and, And that is true. But Abraham was told that your, what you do today, it will, for you, you will, not, you will not see the benefits. It is for your, for your descendants. And he had to be okay with that. He had to be okay with that. <clears throat> Isaac, same thing. He had to be okay with the fact that he was not going to, in his life, he was not going to see all the benefits that were promised to his father and, then, and to his, his son in turn. So I hope that thinking a little bit about what it would, at least a slice of what it would have been like to be Abraham is, is something that we do from time to time. I'll give you one more, one other just little a personal example that comes to mind when I think of, of being in a different culture. And, uh, and that is when I was uh, 12 and we moved, our family moved from Atlanta, Georgia to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Now, if you're a kid living up, growing up in, in Atlanta, Georgia, you're not going to, well, you're going to talk like this, and you're going you're going to have a much different accent from those people who are living up in, in Milwaukee, you see. And so when you go to school and you open your own mouth, what's going to happen is people are going to point and laugh. And they did point and laugh. And you can imagine, I still have him blazing in my mind. I know it's a little bit of a psychological scar pardon me, but but I have emblazoned in my mind the first day I went to middle school when I was 12 years old, standing in a big room, about this size like this, a big room with all, this was in Germantown, right outside Milwaukee, with another, I don't know, 200 kids, none of whom were speaking with a southern accent, and every time I opened my mouth, everybody turned to look and point and say, can you talk some more? Wow, you, you want to be very small, and that was only that was only matched by the, the, the realization that I was the only kid in school carrying a lunchbox, because brown paper bags were what you bring your lunch in when you're going to middle school in Germantown, not a lunchbox. Now the problem with the lunchbox is when you go into the cafeteria. And you put it on the table, clang, right? You, you know that with a lunchbox, right? I had a Batman lunchbox. It was a pretty cool lunchbox as well. But when you clang, everything is, everybody in the cafeteria now. And then of course they see it's me. Can you talk? So I mean, it was, it was, these, these psychological scars are with me, you know, all these years later. But we've all had experiences where you, you don't you feel out of it. Culturally, you don't, you don't click, you don't, you don't feel, like you fit, and it wears. It wears, doesn't it? So one little slice of what it would like to be Abraham, frankly, was, was the cultural disconnect that he, that he endured and that he lived with, that he dealt with because he obeyed God's command to leave his familiar home and come to this land that God had, had uh, directed him to. Matthew chapter 19. Let's think a little bit further about this vision that Abraham had. He had a a vision that, that God was going to bring a blessing to him in the future that was comparable to the stars of the heaven in terms of his offspring. Vision, I'd like to go to Matthew 19 again. You see... Vision, and and we should apply this to ourselves, This is I'm focusing now a bit on application. So a vision is the ability to see into the future as Abraham was able to do. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16. Here's an example. Now behold, one came and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, not get up where you're living and move to a different place. No, in this case, he said, "Why do you, uh, verse, um, uh, verse 17, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. But if you want to enter into life, if you want this, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which one? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 20, the young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And here we go. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. of so other words, in order to do that, what did he have to have? He had to have the vision beyond right now, right here and now. He had to have the vision to say, oh, I will do all this, I will sacrifice this, and follow you, because I want to be Uh, In the future, I want to have something greater, greater than what I have today. But this young man, of course, did not have that vision. When the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Vision is first the ability to comprehend and then act with the long term in mind, not the short term. But but vision goes farther than that. It goes beyond ourselves because even that type of vision just concerns us, doesn't it? I mean, that's a very self-centric vision to be able to give up something, sacrifice something for something for us, for me, in the future. But but there's another type of vision that's a step farther. Let's go to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And I think this is a good example of, of this type of vision that goes beyond ourselves. Luke chapter 9, verse 46, Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. And he said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all will be great." So in other words, he says, "Look, he taught them a lesson. You need to see the potential in a little one. You need to see the potential in someone that that doesn't look very impressive, and frankly is not, from what you can see, has no ability to help you at all. <laughs> this is not someone who's going to make your life any better. But do you see in that person, that little person, do you see the the, the potential?" I mean, this is why we have the programs for the youth in the church, isn't it? This is why so much effort is put into uh, the camp and the adventure program and, and all these efforts. Why? It's because we, I say you and I, Mr. Weston, and the, all the ministry who works in the congregations, we all see the potential beyond just ourselves. Because if we help a child to or a teenager... To, to actually to grow, to gain confidence and learn more about God's way of life and implementing God's way of life and living by God's way of life, does that necessarily help you be a better person? Well, not specifically, right? You're the same person. Who does it help? helps them, doesn't it? So th- there's a type of vision that actually sees beyond ourself and is actually willing to sacrifice, is willing to put forth effort simply because of the benefit to somebody else. And that's a big part of why all these youth programs and, and it goes beyond that, but I think it's a good example why they're so important. In other words, long-term benefits beyond ourselves. Now, we can understand this probably still because our children are our flesh and blood. And so when it comes to our flesh and blood, we'll make, we'll do anything to make life better for them, won't we? I mean, so we, that's, that's still pretty, understandable and uh, we can relate to that but what about the next step let's go to Matthew 24 Matthew 24 what about the vision to help others without any benefit to us or our flesh and blood our children Matthew 24 we read this this statement of a, a picture of the future And it really it's talking about vision, isn't it? He says, When the Son of Man, verse thirty one, comes in his glory this is Matthew twenty four Matthew twenty five, rather. Matthew twenty five says, All the nations well let me back up. It says, Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. In verse thirty two, then all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he'll set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He says then, verse 35, and here's where we get to the vision. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When do we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. In other words, the test... Their test was the application of the law of loving our neighbor, which requires vision, doesn't it? We have to see the ultimate benefit and, and we have to be, be sold, we have to be convicted and even willing to sacrifice for the benefit of others, even if it does nothing for ourselves. In fact, it may minimize our own life in some way because we've sacrificed our time. We sacrifice our effort. We may fall on our face. It may not be well received, but but for a, a zillion reasons, it it may not benefit us at all. But it benefits someone else. That takes vision. That takes seeing beyond ourselves. Abraham, well, I'm not saying he uh, he was fulfilling specifically this in some in some way. I'm saying he had the vision to see and live a life that benefited those far beyond him. And we're just breaking it down and how that vision works in specific ways so that we can apply that today. We may not be Abraham, but we can apply that certainly today in in different ways as we break it down. Galatians chapter 6. That vision even goes farther. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 here. Verse 1, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're told that we need to be able to, well, the same word, is the restore that's used here is that of uh, of mending nets. We need to be able to be uh, so concerned for our brother that Frankly, even if our brother who sins against us, we read about handling that in Matthew 18, right? But, but someone who actually may be on a, a, a track where they're, they're doing things that are wrong, that are hurtful, that are harmful to themselves or others, we have to care enough about them, having the vision to say, you know what? If I can help them, if I can, if I can shake them and say, look, stop that. Don't do that. Don't think that way. Stop acting that way. Stop going down that path because you're hurting yourself. We can either do that, or we can say, yeah, I don't know, I, I don't, it's not my problem, you know. Don't judge. Isn't that the primary, uh, the value of Americans today? Don't judge. Value number one, America, don't judge. Right? Because by actually talking to them and saying, you're out of line, stop that, don't do that, you're judging. And you, if there's anything you don't do, that is judge. First and foremost, value number one of our country today. No. We have to discern. And if you discern that there's, someone is off track, we actually have an obligation as a brother to say, look, I, I'm going to say something here. You're hurting yourself. You're on the wrong track. But you understand what I'm saying. That takes, that takes vision beyond the moment because there's a chance that you may damage the relationship. That is true. It may damage the relationship. But it's what must be done if you are a true brother. He says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So it's not done with an attitude of vanity or an attitude of condescension. No, it needs to be done humbly, certainly. He says, Let each one examine his own work and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in, his, in another, for each one shall bear his own load. Yes, we understand. We're personally responsible. We can't save somebody else, but but we do need to think of them as a brother. Which is not always easy, not always easy, especially when we, we know each other's shortcomings. Romans chapter 5. You know, the more we get together and the more we see each other, the more we see our warts and blemishes. <clears throat> you know, um, this is one of the interesting things about being here in Charlotte. is you bump into people at grocery stores and uh, you know, you, you in different places, it's it's, it's it's unusual for those of us that are lived in places where we, you know, you don't see any other church members except on the Sabbath, it's unusual to bump in somebody in the grocery store. Uh, I bumped into somebody at Costco a couple weeks ago, and uh, I was like, oh, well, hello there, you know, and, and uh, uh, thankfully I didn't have any pork in my, you know, basket at the time. I would quickly take it out and put it, you know, so, oops, I put it in my pocket there, that that loin, what is it, pork loin or whatever it is, you know, but... Uh, it was Mrs. De Simone, so she probably would have told her husband, and then, I, you know, I'd be in all kinds of trouble. But, uh, uh, you know, I'm teasing here. But, but we, it, is, it is unusual that we, we bump into each other so much, but we'd also what happens is we bump into each other and we step on each other as well. At least we have more of an opportunity to step on each other's toes, to say something or hear something that, that is offensive, that's hurtful, that comes across the wrong way. And so we have more opportunities to actually think the best of each other or the worst of each other, because we're, we get to know each other better. That's life, isn't it, though? But we see Romans chapter 5, and verse 6, he says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, the principle is that God is merciful, are we merciful? Are we willing to see the faults in other people and not ha- allow those faults to define them in our vision of them? You know, that is, it's so hard to do, brethren, so that when we see somebody, when we talk about, well, I know that person, they've got lots of problems, but there's something good about them. But we have to preface it by, yeah, I know they're really not so great, but there's something, well, why, do, why do we have to do that? But yet we, we, we have, Sometimes the forefront part of our mind is their flaw and their fault. God is merciful. are we merciful? Are we able to forget? Are we willing to be to brace somebody if necessary? Yes, but also uh, forgive and move forward and, and and love each other and see and have a vision for their future as a fellow member of god's god 's church god 's family god 's ultimately um, the family of God that will be eternal. Are we able to do that? This is true vision. You know, God doesn't just look at the kingdom, his kingdom as a place, but he sees the people. He sees all of us as part of that family. We can live as a family in different places, but what makes, what's most important is the people, isn't it? It's the people who make it, who make it what it is. First John chapter 2. 1 John 2. John, you might say one of our other founding fathers of the New Testament church, a spiritual founding father of the church, said, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment, he said then to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him, and, he in, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. And verse 10 then, he who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. If we can see the potential, if we have the vision to be able to see the good and the ultimate good in other people, we're fulfilling the same principle that Abraham did when he saw the future of the descendants that would ultimately reap the blessings that we we do today. Vision is the ability, whether it's John or others who wrote, it's the ability to see beyond what is. And it takes faith to do that. Talk just for a couple of minutes about, about faith, how that's paired together with vision. Faith is ultimately putting oneself under the control of God or under the hand of God as we have said that we do as a nation. We say we are under God, and we recognize as those who are called out from the confusion of the world that that actually means something. Hebrews chapter 11, let's go here again. Mr. Rettleson, uh was, was here, took you here the, earlier. Let's go again. Hebrews chapter 11. And let's read about our founding fathers. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was, he was called out called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. And this is why I say founding fathers, because it was after the time of Jacob, you might say, that the nation burgeoned from there as they, they grew uh, quickly after that point. So that's why Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are paired, or you might say, You can't say paired because there are three of them. So tripled together, is that even a word? You can triple something? I I suppose so. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are tripled together. That still doesn't sound right. But anyway, I think you understand the point. And he says, for he waited, verse 10, for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. God. By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky. The connection to what we read back earlier in Genesis where God said, See the stars? That's going to be like your descendants. As many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. You see, he's listed here as those of great faith because that faith was paired. That vision was paired with his faith in the future. These all died in faith, verse thirteen, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had had opportunity to to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who has received the promises offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said, in Isaac your your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. And by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, then, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. He, he, could see, he saw this is not going to be the end for us as a people. This is not going to be all there is. He gave it literally gave instructions with a vision and a conviction that they would not be there and they would not die out as, as a people. Do we truly put ourselves under God? Do we have that conviction in God so that we... We actually think about the future as if it were real. That's the conviction that we have of the future. You know, our, our founding fathers, our physical founding fathers of our nation here, they they set a tone for our nation. They did. But in a way, it was a confused voice. Because their primary guide was philosophy. It was philosophy. That was certainly... Better than some despotic kings and kingdoms and times of the past. But it was human philosophy at the end of the day. Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1. We, we have to be so focused above the things of our surroundings, our culture, our nation, that we see things through God's eyes even when we look at and feel like have patriotic feelings towards our world because brethren we have we have fellow members in countries all around the world who have similar patriotic feelings in their own land when i when i lived in thailand and heard the stories of the heroism of thailand becoming a nation where they fought against the burmese kings there's a famous uh, a famous uh, you'll see a picture where there are two elephants fighting in, in in thai artwork and it's what it is is a picture of a famous uh, battle between the leader of Thailand and a leader of of, uh, of Burma and, and, and I, after being there a while and coming to love the people you can 't help but have patriotic stirrings towards that When I see that picture it 's a classic one. you might see I have, I have it in my, in my office uh, You might see it a little in a corner there Well, that means something to me because of living there. Do we not think that our brethren in different parts of the world have their own patriotic feelings about their own history and countries and, and, and their own goodness and their own skills and their own value? So we're no different in that regard. It doesn't mean that we, have, we should not have, I'll say, those patriotic feelings in a positive sense of having a love of our own nation and our own, own history, certainly. That's appropriate. I, I think of those from South Africa and different places. There's a we all have that that culture and those and that, that that tug at our heartstrings for our own people, our own history, but but brethren, we have to be above that. we have to rise above that where we see things through god 's eyes, we see things that that see beyond the frustration and the futility of our world, because no matter what system it is, with what flavor of 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 ethnic uh, you know, ethnic people that are involved in that particular type of, of government or what have you, it's all of man. It's all of man. And that's why getting involved in politics is so destructive, because we allow our emotions to draw us in to our own worldly culture in a way that it is, can only end in frustration, destruction, and it's not going to help matters, because that's going to be that way until Christ's return. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse... Uh, Fifteen. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and he's writing to the church at Ephesus, the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul is... is, is is challenging them to think about their, their local issues and think of the future. Just as Abraham was looking, was, was challenged by God to think of these physical descendants, he's saying, look, think beyond, have the vision and the conviction to think beyond your, the, the, the local uh, scenarios to ultimately the big picture of Christ's And his kingdom, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Here's the premise. Why? Verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's all under Christ's feet. It is all going to be shattered and replaced with a completely new way of doing things under Jesus Christ. What about us in God's church then? Do we have vision and faith? Do we reflect those characteristics of our founding fathers? And as you can see, I'm trying to draw a connection between, on the one hand the faithfulness and the willingness to sacrifice on the part of our founding fathers 250 years ago, and also step back and have a bigger picture of the founding fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That being said, I want to revisit what Mr. Ruddison talked about just for a moment. You see, he talked about John Hart. I'd like to talk about some of the other founding fathers, and what they lived as a result of their willingness to sacrifice for what they believed was important at that time. Fifty-six men signed the Declaration of Independence, as was mentioned. Uh, Their conviction, though, resulted in untold sufferings for themselves and their families. Of the fifty-six men, five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons in the Revolutionary Army another had two sons captured nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds or hardships of the war carter braxton of virginia a wealthy planter and trader saw his ships sunk by the british navy he sold his home and its properties to pay off his debts and he died in poverty at the battle of yorktown the british general cornwallis had taken over thomas nelson's home for his headquarters what did nelson do well ordered General George Washington to open fire on his own home. The home was destroyed, but that wasn't the end because he died bankrupt. He died in poverty. But he was willing because of what he believed in. So their vision and their faith in those what they saw, what they believed was important at that day, that, that sacrifice is to be admired. And, and, to, and to give us give us a, a, a respect for the courage and the willingness to sacrifice that these men had, much like we, we see throughout history, because the sad thing is that literally millions and millions i don 't know billions how many people have have died for causes that at the end of the day are empty because brethren. Was their sacrifice, ultimately, did their sacrifice give this land the peace and the prosperity that brings happiness to all people? Have you looked out the window? It's, uh, really? Had, did, were they successful? Were they successful? At the end of the day, here we are in a land that is being torn apart, ripped apart, and partly because of the ideals and the philosophies that went into our, our, our founding. Rights, human rights as opposed to responsibilities. That's the difference between God's law and God's way and man's way. Human approaches it from my rights. God approaches it from responsibilities. Don't murder your neighbor. Don't steal what is his. Don't take his wife. These are responsibilities that place a person, their direction, their mind on loving other people as opposed to demanding love from other people. But we, in our effort to actually have a wonderful land, we've actually, unfortunately, based early on, based some of our laws and thinking on premises that come out of Humanism and in the Enlightenment and John Locke and others like that. And so we suffer the consequences today, like so many people have, who have sacrificed in vain wars just within the, our, our time. Do you see what's happening in Afghanistan right now where we're, we're walking out, closing the door behind us, and as we do, the Taliban are coming behind and murdering people. What was it? All the lives that have been lost... And all the lives that will continue to be lost by Afghanis who are going to try to fight that losing battle. And you know what? At the end of the day, their lives will be wasted because they will not be successful. We we have a bigger hope. We have a hope in what will really bring success. And that is the return of Jesus Christ as he's promised and prophesied. Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60. And we'll to wrap it up here isaiah chapter 60 what is our vision what is our goal for which we're willing to sacrifice we have it laid out here in the scriptures for example in isaiah chapter 60 and 61 and 62 where we read about the light shining on mankind, verse 1, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. He's, he's saying, look, in the future, Israel, the people that are descendants of Abraham, are going to be used... As, a, as an example, as a model, as teachers, to bring ha- true happiness through, not through principles from the Enlightenment, but principles that come from God himself, they're going to be able to bring, with our help and our involvement, light to the earth that will be lasting, that will not sow the seeds of His own destruction, but instead will sow seeds that will bear fruit of peace and happiness. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. Actually, let's jump across the page. Verse 19. verse Chapter 60, verse 19. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be an everlasting light, and your God your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your morning shall be ended. And also your people shall all be righteous." Wow, what a statement. Just that alone. Put that on the, you know, put that on the screensaver. For your people shall all be righteous. That's what will bring true happiness and success and prosperity. Righteousness. Righteousness. That's what it's all about. You know, maybe we're not founding fathers, but maybe we're founding brothers and sisters a little bit, maybe. I like to think of it that way. You know, that we're, we're part of the solution, truly. Not a solution that will end just in one more rotation of frustration. But we're, we're actually part and parcel. We're participating in a future that will bring happiness to all mankind. We can see today with godly vision. We can see today what God has in store for tomorrow. And we can have faith, conviction, in that day and in God's hand to bring it about. No matter how dark our world looks around us and how confused, how frustrated and angry and hostile our world looks looks today, we we, we can see beyond that. We have the blessing and the benefit through God's calling. So for us in this country, inheriting and enjoying the blessings promised to Abraham Isaac, and Jacob, you know, we should consider the historical significance of Independence Day tomorrow. We should. But we actually look upon it with greater understanding than our fellow citizens, don't we? Because we can see beyond today. We can see beyond what the founding fathers of this nation could see. They could only see the best in mankind mankind solutions. They could only think so hard. No matter how genius they were, there was only so much they could draw upon. But we have something more. We have an understanding of what it really means. The the fulfilled prophecy to which the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob point. And frankly, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the the UK, as as the modern day fulfillment of biblical prophecy, all of these All of us, I should say, as these nations, we should consider the history of our nation and how it validates what God has said. And beyond that, other nations, understanding those who are, I'll say, the extended family of Ephraim and Manasseh, beyond the Israelitish peoples, and truly beyond, because I said at the beginning, as members of God's church, we recognize, no matter if we're not American, no matter where we are, we recognize what God has done through the history of of, of uh, the Anglo-Saxon peoples and, and Israel. We we understand that. So it's not in that sense. It's not, it's not just a message for Americans. It's not just a message for Canadians. It, it's for us as people of God, understanding God's hand in in history and in prophecy. It's still a profound witness to God's hand, no matter where we live and what our nationality is as part of God's church. But, but more importantly, most importantly, we should be inspired to, to follow the example of the spiritual founding fathers. Men who, with their wives and families, they set in motion God's plan for millions of their descendants. Just think about Abraham and what we, we owe to him. Because, because it's a plan, We see outlined in the Bible, it's a plan which has led to the wonderful blessings that we enjoy today. Blessings ultimately that will pale in comparison with the next step in God's plan. When he brings the whole earth under his hand. Godspeed that day.